I think it's really irritating to tell candidates, okay, go out and win this race, but you're gonna have a 10th of the money your opponent has. You're gonna have a 10th of the infrastructure your opponent has but you better do it, it's your responsibility. I think that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is there's a severe lack of investment in the state of Texas. And there's a severe lack of infrastructure in the state of Texas because people won't invest in it. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Olivia Juliana, an abortion rights advocate and the Director of Politics and Government Affairs at Gen Z for Change. With the help of her substantial TikTok following, Olivia initiated the takedown of an anti-abortion whistleblower website and raised over $2.3 million after a Twitter battle with Congressman Matt Gates. She's recently become a senior advisor to Lose Cruz, an organization dedicated to defeating Ted Cruz's re-election bid in 2024. Olivia, welcome to Burn the Boats. I am very happy to be here. You said in a recent TED Talk that Texas has become a beacon of extremism for the nation, and as goes Texas, so goes the nation. I have been watching Texas for the better part of a decade, waiting for it to flip. My parents live in a rural conservative community, probably uh, not unlike the one you describe growing up in. So the state has a special place in my heart, but it keeps letting us down. Can you give us a sense of what is going on there and how it became, as you put it, a beacon of extremism? Yeah, absolutely. What we've seen happen in Texas is not unlike what we've seen happen in other states that are run by conservatives and by the Republican Party. It's been a slow tick over the last several decades of strategic investments, voter suppression, and just general fear tactics that have been used to create this conservative stronghold in the state. When we look back at, you know, like the election in the heyday of, you know, the former governor Ann Richards, there was a lot more infrastructure. There was a much more active Democratic Party in the state. And now when we look at Texas, we have these millionaires who have been pumping hundreds of millions of dollars into elections on every level of the ballot in Texas for the last 30 years. And there's just not been the same investment on the left into the state of Texas. And I think that's a mistake because, you know, we've seen now Texas is a majority minority state. And we have a huge number of registered voters who are just not coming out to the polls or aren't able to cast their ballot because of how extreme our voter suppression laws are. And so what's going on in Texas is it's a mix of, you know, national Democrats, national donors are not investing as much as they should be. There's not enough infrastructure to keep up with the organizing that we need to be going on in the state. But also we're facing attacks on all cylinders. and. These conservative leaders who have taken charge, like Greg Abbott, like Ken Paxton, who's currently being impeached in the Texas legislature, have put forward some of the most extreme pieces of legislation in the entire country. You know, the first state to have a civil bounty abortion ban was the state of Texas. And we've seen constantly from this governor, constantly from this lieutenant governor, Dan Patrick, who I want to point out because people so often leave him out of the fold, these pieces of legislation that attack civil rights on all fronts, that take power away from Texans, that take power away from public education, uh, and they refuse to do even simple things that other Republican governors will do. They won't expand Medicaid, even though there's federal money for it to be there. And then they 
get mad and point fingers and wonder, well, why is Texas, you know, one of the worst states in the country for maternal health care? And so it's just a constant attack on all cylinders. It's lack of investment. And it's the fact that we have billionaires who are propping up these conservative politicians, bankrolling their campaigns to pass policy that benefits them and not the working people of Texas. I definitely want to get into some of those policies and the extremist bent that they have taken on, especially the civil bounty abortion ban. But your framing is especially helpful in pointing the finger at the conservatives who run Texas, not Texans. And and you said, I believe it was in the Teen Vogue article, you said the reality is Texas is not a red state. Texas is a voter suppression state. Tell me about Texans, not the politicians who run the state, but the people you grew up with, though they may cast themselves as conservative, the government of Texas isn't really reflective of the people of Texas today. And as you said, it's due, if it's not already, to become a majority minority state. There is this incredible energy that just hasn't been tapped into to move the state forward because it's being held in check by a extremist minority in power. Yeah, I mean, you know, there there are a lot of self-identified conservatives in the state of Texas. I won't deny that. It's true. But the thing about Texans that I find to be so uniquely beautiful is there's this quality of coming together in difficult times and truly being there to help your neighbor. And we see that most commonplace in Texas, unfortunately, through natural disasters. You know, I think of in my life, you know, I'm 20 years old, turned 21 this year. The moments where I can think of Texans coming together the most were during Hurricane Harvey. The hurricane that happened, oh gosh, I think I was a few years old. So I don't even remember the name of it. But in those times, you know, it's, it is really true that, or, you know, with the, when the grid failed during the Texas winter storm, it is in those times where your political affiliation truly does not matter. And you will see people of all walks of life coming together to help their neighbor. And I think the the people who really remind me of that are, you know, my family. My dad is a lifelong Republican. He has voted for Republicans. He's voted for Abbott before. He's voted for Trump before. And I look at my father, and this is the same man who the day of the winter storm was driving around our small town, fixing people's pipes with and paying for the materials with his own money because that's the type of person he is. And there are a lot of people in Texas who are like on both sides of the aisle. And so I don't, I don't, you know, believe this notion that, you know, that all Texans are malicious or hateful or bigoted, because I know a lot of really great people who are conservatives. I know a lot of really great people in Texas who are Democrats. And there's just this culture of friendliness and hospitality and being welcome that I think a lot of people really don't know about because they only hear about Texas from the articles that are talking about all of the bad policy that's coming out of the state. And the reality is uh, most Texans are just really good, hardworking, good-hearted people. But the reality of, of growing up where you did, and I'm reflecting on my my parents' community in rural Texas, and you have written about this and commented on it, is that there aren't a lot of visible Democrats, at least out Democrats, if you will. And that that has a, a real effect on people's perceptions. This idea that, you know, all your neighbors think a certain way about politics tends to steer you 
in in that direction. Can you talk about being the only Democrat or what felt like the only Democrat growing up in a small Texas town? I mean, it was incredibly isolating. I grew up in a very small conservative town, very, very, very small, very conservative town. And I think back to, you know, different moments of my childhood where I could feel those partisan lines very clearly. And, you know, one of the most prominent stories that I really don't tell a lot is after I had started being involved in politics, you know, on election day in 2020, I lived kind of near the high school that I that I went to. And a group of teenage boys quite literally organized a Trump parade to drive by my house to my high school that day. Like that is the reality of the city that I grew up in. And, you know, it, it's, it was hard to deal with. It was hard to, you know, feel like, am I the only person who believes this? And I think that that's why social media became such a big part of what I do is because I was able to find other people like me who believed the same things that I did, who had the same morals that I did. And I think that now because, you know, you, you start to see more people coming out as outwardly Democrat. And I will credit that I will work with a, for a lot of that because there are a lot of uh, what we call dirt road Democrats who really started to kind of show themselves more in this past uh, gubernatorial election that happened in Texas by putting out signs. Because there's this kind of idea that, like you said, that, you know, there's not really Democrats in these rural areas. There are. They're just, for one, they're not being campaigned to, you know. I live in, I lived, I grew up in Fort Bend County, which is one of the fastest growing bluest counties in the state of Texas. And I did not ever get a piece of literature. My door was never knocked on. I didn't even live that far outside of the city limits. So I didn't see a Democrat campaigning for me to vote for them until I moved to Houston. And I think that's a mistake. And I think that that's part of the problem that we see so often with Democrats, um, not just in the state of Texas, but around the country is I'm a firm believer of run every race. There should be a Democrat on every single ballot in every single election across the country. There should be somebody who, even if they don't know that they're going to win, they're still making the effort to show their community like, hey, you're not alone in the beliefs that you have. I'm out here. I believe the same things that you do. And I think that that's part of the reason why we see so much of this narrative of, you know, Texas conservatives, because there are some places where Democrats just won't run, even though there are Democrats out there. And I think that we need to be more open about our political beliefs. We've all heard the famous line, try it free for 30 days. Yeah, well, that's just enough time to try it and then completely forget about it. In fact, over 80% of people have subscriptions they forgot about. You could be wasting money and not even realizing it. Rocket Money helps you find those forgotten subscriptions so you can stop paying for ones you don't use. Do you know how much your subscriptions really cost? Most Americans think they spend around $80 a month on subscriptions, but the actual total is closer to $200. If you don't know exactly how much you're spending every month, you need Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Over 80% of people have subscriptions they forgot about, and chances are you're one of them. Like that Stars app just to watch one show, or that free gaming trial you never actually used. Rocket Money will quickly and easily find your subscriptions for you. 
And for any you don't want to pay for anymore, just hit cancel and Rocket Money will cancel it for you. It's that easy. Rocket Money also helps you manage all your finances in one place and automatically categorizes your expenses so you can easily track your budget in real time and also get alerted if anything looks off. Over 3 million people have used Rocket Money, saving the average person up to $720 a year. Stop throwing your money away, cancel unwanted subscriptions, and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash boats. That's rocketmoney.com slash boats. Rocketmoney.com slash boats. Have you heard of senescent cells, also known as zombie cells? These old, worn-out cells no longer serve a useful function for our health, wasting our energy and nutritional resources. These zombie cells tend to accumulate in our bodies as we age, leading to the aches, slow workout recoveries, and sluggish mental and physical energy associated with that middle-age feeling. Our sponsor, Neurohacker, packs seven of the most science-backed senolytic ingredients into one formula called Qualiosenolytic, and you can take it just two days a month for fast, noticeable benefits, and for a much better aging process. Senolytic ingredients are science-backed to support our body's natural elimination of zombie cells. My body and energy levels feel about 15 years younger after just a couple months of adding qualia senolytic to my diet. I love how easy it is to take. Having more physical and mental energy for my family and friends is such a win in how I show up for those I love. My productivity has doubled. I feel invigorated and enthusiastic again with a daily drive and enthusiasm to get things done. The formula is non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, and the ingredients are meant to complement one another, factoring in the combined effect of all ingredients together. It's also backed by a 100-day money-back guarantee, so you have almost three months to try Qualia Senolytic at no financial risk and decide for yourself. If you're in your late 20s or older, adding Qualia Senolytic to your diet can play a crucial role in combating negative aging symptoms. Go to neurohacker.com slash boats for up to 50% off Qualia Senolytic. And as a listener of Burn the Boats, use code BOATS at checkout for an extra 15% off your first purchase. That's neurohacker.com slash boats to try Qualia Senolytic with code BOATS and start aging on your terms. This is sponsored by Lomi. I have a big family, and that means there's usually a lot of trash left over by the time the week comes to an end. And frankly, I used to feel a bit guilty about this, but then I got a Lomi. Now that I have a Lomi, it's changed the way I think about food waste. Lomi transforms my garbage into gold at the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns food scraps to dirt in under four hours. Now, I love composting. Plus, it's made cooking at home even more fun. There's no food rotting in my garbage. And thanks to Lomi, I don't have to take out the trash nearly as often. And it's a hassle-free, mess-free experience. No more leaking bags. Here's something cool, too. I turn my waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can feed to my plants, lawn, or garden. That means it's not going to landfills. I get to help the environment and make my life easier. All my food scraps, plant clippings, and even those leftovers I forgot in the back of the fridge go back into my garden, helping me grow more nutritious food right in my backyard. Food waste makes up a huge portion of our personal carbon footprint. By reducing the amount of food I send to a landfill, I'm helping do my part for the planet while also feeding my garden. Whether you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just grow a beautiful garden, Lomi is perfect for you. 
Head to Lomi.com slash boats and use promo code boats to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash boats and use promo code boats at checkout. Thank you, Lomi, for sponsoring this episode. Can you talk about what Beto achieved? His loss was heartbreaking for so many of us, but his attempt to campaign in every Texas County, the effects that you saw on the ground, you mentioned those yard signs. I've seen that for myself campaigning in a very conservative Ohio district. It takes a lot of guts to put the first Democratic yard sign up. But before long, you see another one and another one and another one. They're out there. It's just a matter of overcoming that intimidation factor. What did Beto do to show Texas Democrats that they could be a force? I think that the biggest thing that Beto did, honestly, was start a conversation. You know, the Beto we saw in 2018, I think, is a very different Beto that we saw in 2022, especially considering who he was running against. And I think that there were a lot of things that people were forced to talk about in this election because not only was Beto the candidate, but he was also running against Greg Abbott, who is a wildly unpopular politician for the large part. And so I think by traveling across the state, Beto did a couple of things. Number one, he showed people that, you know, every voter is worth investing in, which I agree with. Number two, he showed that, you know, Texas isn't just, it's not just Houston. It's not just Dallas. It's not just San Antonio. You know, there are a lot of other towns out there that people, you know, they want to, they want to be seen. They want to be heard. Now, you know, I would have done things a little bit differently in terms of how much time I spent where, but I respect the fact that he made the effort to show every Texan that he does care about them. And I think that sparked a lot of conversation about, well, where do we need to be investing in Texas? Where are we the closest to making gains? Where are we the closest to flipping seats? And if anything, I think the results of Beto's election is it shows us an electoral map that shows us where the weak spots are in a midterm year, and it shows us where we need to invest. And I think that it's going to help us out a lot going into 2024 in terms of the strategy of where we're making investments in Texas. But I also do think it sparked those conversations with your neighbors. You know, my family in particular, I have several family members who are like, hey, you know, like I'm voting this election because of, you know, your TikToks about Beto, or I went to this Beto rally and I listened to him talk. And God love him, Beto, that he's just one of those people where he just draws people in and, you know, he just knows how to keep your attention. And I think that the national narrative that he was able to create about good people, good Democrats, good, solid, hard workers coming from Texas is something that's very valuable because I think for people nationally to see him and go, wow, you know, this is a Texas Democrat. He's from El Paso. He's been here, you know, for most of his life. And these are his beliefs and these are his morals. There's probably a lot of other Texans out there just like him. And I really appreciate him for doing that and helping create that narrative. How much is the Texas legislature doing to animate Democrats? I mean, their extremist policies seem like just political malpractice. The overreach really seems like it's going to provoke a response. Are you seeing that on the ground? And please use this opportunity to talk about the civil bounty abortion ban, which, you know, again, Texas was a pioneer, not in a good way, in inventing new ways to persecute women. Yeah, I mean, the civil bounty abortion ban is one of the 
cruelest pieces of legislation I've ever seen in my entire life. I know I'm young, but you know, someone who quite literally sits and sifts through policy every single day to read it, it you know, it incentivizes not only neighbors and loved ones to, to spy on individuals really, and to wrap them out for a financial prize, but it also puts this horrible pressure on medical professionals. You know, if you provide somebody with the care that they need, you potentially could be liable to pay this money to this other individual. And it's just a horrible system. For those who aren't familiar, can you break down the mechanics of how this works? Because it really is like Stasi level, East German informant level, dystopian lawmaking. And and I, I ask you to be specific because the first time I had a conversation with my parents about it, they had no idea it existed, given the news that they they consume. And I realized as an Ohioan, I actually knew more about this law than my parents living in Texas because of just how stovepiped news is and how insulated some people are. Uh, but if if Texans understood how brutal this law is in the details, I think they'd rebel. Yeah. So the law does not place this civil burden. When I say civil burden, I mean the ability to be sued and have to pay a sum of up to $10,000 in a civil lawsuit. It does not place that burden on the individual who is seeking the abortion. Instead, what it does is it seeks to place that responsibility on anybody who aided the individual in getting access to an abortion. So that could be an Uber driver. It could be a friend who drove you to a clinic. It could be a coworker who helps you get access to abortion pills. And it could be a medical professional that provides you the abortion that you're looking for. And so in this uniquely cruel way, not only is it incentivizing people to report on those helping you get access to the care that you need, but it's also keeping the people who are seeking care from getting help from individuals around them and the fear that they will be liable to pay this money and have to go through these lawsuits because of this civil bounty law. It's deeply isolating, and I think it's incredibly cruel. And I also think that it places this extreme burden and weight on medical professionals to have to understand the reality of if I help this person, there's a possibility that I'm going to be named in this lawsuit and that I may potentially have to pay out this money. And I think that's an incredibly terrifying thing. And I think it's an incredibly dystopian thing to quite literally say, like, we have people who are watching you. And something that was even created here in Texas, and this is kind of where I got my start, is Texas Right to Life, the organization that has pushed for a lot of these anti-abortion policies, put out a tip line where they quite literally had people reporting individuals who aided in abortion access. And, you know, the kids on TikTok, we ended up taking it down. But the point is, the fact that that even existed is terrifying. And the the Republican legislatures in the state, especially in state ledge, it's not just abortion. And I think that that's the thing that frustrates me a little bit when it comes to politics in talking about the state of Texas. A lot of people will talk about abortion, but they don't talk about all of the other major pieces of legislation or things that are happening at a state level in Texas. We just had one of the largest school districts in the state, HISD, have their entire democratically elected school board removed and a new school board was put up by the governor. That just happened. We just had a whole session 
go through where we have uh, more voter suppression bills being put up, where we have bans on trans kids' healthcare being put up, further restrictions on different healthcare procedures. The thing that scares me most now is uh, there is this, it really is not a better way of saying this, of there is a huge pissing contest going on right now in the Texas legislature between the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the speaker of the Texas House over this whole school choice or voucher program debacle. And the result of that is we went through this entire special, this entire session of the Texas legislature to now these bills are making it to Governor Abbott's desk. And if you are not somebody who supports his voucher program idea, he is now vetoing your bills that you have passed through the legislature saying Maybe we'll consider this bill after a special session where school choice has been passed. And that is happening to both Democrats and Republicans who oppose the school voucher program because they are from rural areas and they don't want taxpayer money going to different charter schools or voucher programs. And so the livelihood, the policy livelihood of the people of Texas is quite literally being gambled with by this governor who is turning against his own party and turning against legislation for his own political beliefs and his own political game, really. Not even political game. It's quite literally just his political beliefs because public education is very popular amongst Texans. This is just a a private issue that he's using months of legislative work to just piss away because he can. It seems like things are getting worse in the Texas legislature. And when I think about your reaction to the attacks on women's health care and your your incredible effort to raise over two million dollars in the wake of these attacks from Matt Gates and others. I mean, credit to you for that. And I know that money did great things for women in need. But I look at the Texas legislature and I don't see the changes happening. When is that backlash going to materialize? When is the Texas legislature and when is Governor Abbott held accountable? Do you know what I mean? When are national donor tables going to start investing in the state? Talk about that. I think that's the real issue here is, you know, Texas is getting a fraction of what it should be in donors and in organizing help. You know, this is a state of 30 million people. 30 million people. And I think it's really irritating to tell candidates, okay, go out and win this race, but you're going to have a tenth of the money your opponent has. You're going to have a tenth of the infrastructure your opponent has, but you better do it. It's your responsibility. I think that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is there's a severe lack of investment in the state of Texas. And there's a severe lack of infrastructure in the state of Texas because people won't invest in it. The second part of the problem is that we have all these voters who are registered, they're eligible, and they're not voting. And I think that that is a problem reflector of a larger issue that I have found within democratic politics, in particular within how we campaign to young people. If you look at uh, you know the, the the demographics of messaging that people pick for young people in America, what are we going to get to say to bring the young people out to vote? They're basing it off of voter demographics. The number one demographic of young voters who vote in this country are young white women, and when you base your messaging of what young voters want based off of just this demographic, it's not going to include 
the the messaging and the issues that are important to the young people who aren't voting. And the young people who aren't voting for the most part are young black and brown people who are either disenfranchised, voter suppressed, or who honestly haven't been campaigned or reached out to. And I think that that's a really big issue in Texas is that we have a lot of people, black and brown people in particular, who feel like they have been left behind by both the Republican and the Democratic Party. And until we start having legitimate conversations about the issues that Black and Brown, specifically Black and Latino Texans are facing, and highlighting what we can actually do to better serve those communities and what we've actually done for those communities, I think we're going to keep having issues. And I think the biggest mistake, in my opinion, that Democrats in the state of Texas make far too often is purposefully distancing themselves from national Democrats, in particular, President Biden. Especially because Democrats have not had control of Texas for 30 years. You cannot run just on a fear-based platform. You have to run on a hope-based platform. And that's why President Obama is so popular in Texas. And so when we have these successes, like the IRA, the American Rescue Plan, uh, the Chips and Science Act, the first piece of bipartisan gun legislation in this lifetime, when we have those successes... And then we have no state record to run on. Why aren't we talking about that? Why are we talking about all of the money that's coming into Texas because of the Biden administration? We should be. And I think, you know, if we get more investment from national donors, we have better messaging to accurately reflect all of the demographics in the state of Texas. And we actually talk about the successes of Democrats on a national platform to the people of Texas and show them how that has tangibly benefited their lives. I think we'll start to see a lot of changes happening here in the state. Did you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you wake up too hot or too cold, I highly recommend you check out Miracle Made's bed sheets. Using silver-infused fabrics originally inspired by NASA, Miracle Made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long so you get better sleep every night. These sheets are infused with silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth leaving them cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands, and they feel as nice, if not nicer, than bed sheets used by some five-star hotels. Stop sleeping on bacteria. Bacteria can clog your pores, causing breakouts. Sleep clean with Miracle. Go to trymiracle.com boats to try Miracle-made sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo, Boats, at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash boats and use the code to claim your free three-piece towel set and save 40% off. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. Hi, Burn the Boats fans. I want to take a quick break to talk about our sponsor for today's show, Roan. Men's closets are long overdue for a radical reinvention, and Roan has stepped up to the challenge. Roan's commuter collection represents the most comfortable, breathable, and flexible clothes I've ever found. Roan makes it so easy to get ready for any occasion. The commuter collection offers the world's most comfortable pants, 
dress shirts, quarter zips, and polos. Roan's comfortable four-way stretch fabric provides breathability and flexibility that leaves you free to enjoy whatever life throws your way, from your commute to work to weekends at the kids' ballgames. Looking good is easy with Roan's wrinkle release technology, which makes wrinkles magically disappear seriously as you wear the products. It's really that easy. I don't have time between work and family and everything in between to worry about dry cleaning or ironing with Roan. I don't have to. I just wear and go. And I feel great doing it. Even after a long day, Roan feels clean and new and just as comfortable as the moment I put it on. You got to try it out. Head to roan.com slash boats and use promo code boats to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com slash boats and use code boats. Trust me, Roan makes choosing what to wear not just easy, but classy and comfortable. That's roan.com slash boats. Talk to me about Gen Z for change and how you're capitalizing on those policy successes. You know, Gen Z for change has been around, you know, since the 2020 election. And we've worked with different politicians and different groups, you know, all over the country on a number of different issues. And the main issues that we've really focused on are labor, LGBTQ plus rights, reproductive rights, and, you know, public education. And we use social media to leverage our our power and talk about those issues. Our most successful campaigns to date have been our Safer Initiative, which happened after Roe, with the fundraising numbers that you mentioned earlier, being the biggest part of that. But we also worked with Congressman Carolyn Maloney to send a letter to Yelp and Google to talk about how they need to have disclaimers on crisis pregnancy centers to say that this place may not offer abortion services because that is a common misconception that can lead people to not actually getting the care that they need. You know, we've worked with Starbucks Workers United to send fake job applications to stores that were looking to hire scab workers who were trying to bust, as the stores were trying to bust up unions. You know, and we've worked to help elect politicians like Josh Shapiro and John Fetterman and you know, all any number of people up and down the ballot, you know, and we've done it all on social media. We've done it all by meeting young people where they are. And when we start to make investments in the places that we know young people are constantly at, where they're being talked to, not talked at, but talked to by people who look like them, who have similar backgrounds to them, who understand the different generational traumas that they've gone through, There's a real impact there because you're hearing from your peers. You're not just hearing from a politician or from a news anchor. Because the reality is young people aren't going to, you know, MSNBC or CNN or CBS to get their news. They're coming to people like me on TikTok who have a following, who are covering what's going on in a way that they can actually understand. And so that's what Gen Z for Change has been doing the last two years. That's what Gen Z for Change will continue to do. And, you know, I'm my time at Gen Z for Change is coming to an end soon as I transition into focusing on the Lose Cruise Pack. But I know and I have full faith that the team that I've worked with for the last two and a half years uh, is going to keep giving them hell because that's what we've been doing. Good. I want to talk about Lose Cruise in a second, but uh, a philosophical question about Gen Z for Change. The leadership of the organization, the membership is, you know, 20-somethings for, for the most part, which is great. We need that insight. We need the wisdom you bring to the fight. How do you balance that 
against the wisdom of those who've been in the fight for decades. You mentioned Shapiro and Fetterman. How do you integrate those two and make sure that your voice is heard, but you know, you're still open enough to the tactical or strategic guidance of those who've been in the trenches for a long time? Yeah, I mean, the, the honest answer is we just talk to them. You know, if we if we have a, a labor initiative we want to do, you know, we, we talk to SCIU, we talk to AFL. You know, if we have a repro initiative we want to do, we talk to Jane's due process. You know, we consult and go to these people who have been in the fight longer than us and say, hey, what do you think about this? Or what are your thoughts? Or what can we be doing better? And I think that that's something I really appreciate about not just Gen Z for Change, but about the older people who have been in this fight who will come in and help us is, I think it's reflective of something that we're seeing much more nationally too, is that it's not so much, you know, the kids will save us anymore. It's a lot of intergenerational movements that I really respect and I'm really happy to see because I think when we all finally come together, you know, different walks of life, different age groups, different generations, I think that that's when we really, really start to see a lot of change. And that, and that's when I point to states like Pennsylvania, where, you know, it, it truly has become an intergenerational fight because you have Josh Shapiro, who is an amazing governor, who was an amazing candidate, but you also have the fact that his daughter, Sophia, was leading students for Shapiro and organizing young people across the state. And I think that that's just really reflective of not just Gen Z for change, but of what's going on nationally as we're starting to see more and more people coming together and more and more people getting involved in organizing. I am absolutely guilty or have been in the past of the the kids will save us mindset. Uh, it's largely a reflection of my faith in, in my own kids and your generation. But I am much more aware now of the totally unfair burden that places on on your generation. <laughs> what do allies most get wrong when engaging Gen Z uh, and trying to leverage your energy and learn from your wisdom? Oh, I think the thing that, that bothers me the most is I have a lot of older folks who follow me and support me and they're on board and they think I'm smart. And they think I'm brilliant. And then I say one thing they disagree with and then it's, oh, well, you're just a kid. You know, oh, well, you know, you're young. You know, you got, you got more life to live. And I think that that's the problem is if you're going to take us seriously for the things you agree with us on, you have to take us seriously when we're telling you we disagree with you on something, especially because there's a different perspective there. And I think that there's this really weird culture of calling people out instead of calling people in. And I really appreciate how I have some older mentors who will, you know, quietly come to me and be like, I disagree with this thing that you said. And I'll be like, oh, you know what? You're right. And so because there's just this defensiveness because, you know, we are young in this space. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is the thing you said of, you know, the kids will save us. You know, I, I'm an organizer. I work in politics full time, but I'm also a student. I'm a full time student. And like, I'm still in college and trying to balance, you know, doing my homework and also being told it's your responsibility to save democracy kind of exhausting and it's kind of this a huge burden to place on young people i think instead of saying like oh you know the kids will save us is okay well what can we do together to save democracy i think is probably the two biggest things that drive me nuts about how people view older or younger folks could not agree more all right lose cruise pack my first question is why does texas keep voting for that guy and what can we do to help you beat him 
Well, first of all, I think a lot of people, when they talk about Ted Cruz, they point to 2018. So 2018, this is a midterm year. And Ted Cruz came very close to losing his seat in 2018. It's now Ted Cruz is going to be up for election in 2024. This is a presidential year where it is entirely possible that we are going to have Donald Trump on the ballot as the leader of the Republican Party once again. And if I'm Ted Cruz, I would be absolutely terrified at the prospect that I have to run in the same seat that I almost lost by three points in a midterm election the last time I ran for this seat. And now I have to run in a presidential year where we know that the number of voters who are coming out is going to be extremely higher than it was in that midterm year. Not only is it going to be higher because it's a presidential year, but it's going to be higher because the two people who are likely to be on the ballot are potentially Joe Biden and Donald Trump. If I'm Ted Cruz, I'm terrified at that prospect, especially considering how many people absolutely hate my guts on both sides of the aisle. So I think that the the first question you asked is, you know, why do people keep electing Ted Cruz? Like I said before, you know, there's a there's a severe lack of investment in the state of Texas. And I think Beto had a lot of investment in 2018 and he came really damn close. And I think if that had been a presidential year, the outcome of that election would have been different. Now, I think that Cruz has been able to, to kind of slide by a couple times uh, and, you know, maybe maybe get some positive press here or there from, from his base. But the reality is, I think this is the first time that Ted Cruz is really going to have to face the music in a very blunt, dramatic, upright way because he's not running for president. He's up for his Senate election in a presidential year where he is one of the most unpopular political figures on both sides of the aisle in the entire country. And, you know, that's not even coming from me. That's coming from other Republicans. I mean, I'm not going to tell you specifics, but just Google, you know, Republican quotes on Ted Cruz, and I'll tell you everything you need to know. Oh, I know. My parents are Republicans in Texas. I have a sense of just how unlikable that man is. Last question, because I would be negligent if I didn't at least acknowledge the the Twitter showdown you had with with Matt Gates. I know that's well trod territory journalistically, but I, I have a I guess another philosophical question. How do you hold trolls like that accountable? when all they want is attention. And you did it masterfully. You turned the tables. You raised $2.3 million for a cause he hates. How? What's your advice to other people who are the targets of that kind of trolling? How do you turn the tables without feeding the troll, if you know what I mean? You know, if they want attention, give them attention. Just don't give them the attention they're looking for. You know, I fully believe that Matt Gates. He wanted to elicit a reaction out of me, but the reaction that he wanted from me, he wanted me to scream and cry and be offended and be upset because he wanted to be able to characterize me as just another, you know, bleeding heart liberal abortion rights activist. And that's not what I did because for one, it's not who I am. But two, it's because I knew that's what he wanted me to do. When we feed into these outrage narratives and we do get angry or we get triggered, we're giving them what they want. I firmly believe in 
we have to start hitting these people where it hurts. We have to start being bold and brash and unapologetic in our attacks to them. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah, you can you can body shame me and you can expect me to cry and get triggered. That's fine. It doesn't change the fact that you are an unsuccessful lawmaker and an alleged pedophile. So if you want to attack me, that's fine. But this is who you are. And everyone knows that. And it pisses them off because they don't expect you to hold their feet to the fire like that. So whether it's Matt Gates uh, who wants to, you know, attack me like that, or whether it's someone like Ted Cruz, because Ted Cruz leans into it too. He leans into humor. That's fine, Ted Cruz. You can lean into humor. The reality is, once again, an unsuccessful lawmaker, and you're a coward who blames all of your controversy on your wife and children. And that's sad and you're pathetic. So it's just, just stuff like that. Being honest, talk about their record. These are elected officials who are supposed to be legislators. And when they want to talk about these social issues or they want to put themselves out there to be a character who's on TV or who's doing all these other things, that's fine. But let's peel all that back. What have you done for your constituents? What have you done for the American people? And when you do that, you see two people who vote against veterans benefits, who vote against public education, who vote against expanding healthcare access, who threaten to cut social security. And that's what they're trying to distract you from is their horrible legislative record and the fact that they can't coast, they can't be the main sponsor of successful legislation. Well, Olivia, this has been great. I can't wait until the next time somebody comes after you. I'm going to be waiting with bated breath for that. That'll be that'll be a good one. Uh, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks again to Olivia for joining me. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Roloffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, will discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting, and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.